You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we think of those words that Scripture tells us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We think about those words that said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And Lord, we praise you. We give you all the honor and glory, Lord. You alone are worthy. We pray, dear Lord, that our hearts are made ready now, not only in worship, but, dear Lord, to receive your word and that, dear Lord, you would somehow speak to us, dear Lord, a truth that would shake us at the very core of our being and change us forever. Lord, may every time we open up this treasure chest we call the Bible, may we, dear Lord, find something that is so life-changing that when we read it, when we study it, when we hear it preached, that we walk out of here never the same. And that's the way it should always be when we come into your presence, when we open your word, when we sing as a body of believers. Now, Lord, on a personal note, I was a little frustrated this morning. Sheila was trying to load the... Well, I was loading all the stuff in the truck. She was dragging a little behind. I got frustrated. And so, Lord, I asked Sheila to forgive me for being frustrated with her this morning. I pray, dear Lord, that my heart would be where it needs to be. And, Lord, that you would use it for your glory. Lord, we love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. And uh, don't laugh, you probably may ought to do the same thing sometimes. Preachers do get frustrated every once in a while. And, uh, but anyway, uh, it's good to see you here. I was reading something in, in 19, it was either 1900 or 1901 that Harrods, which is a famous department store there in London, had installed this contraption that would take people from the first floor up to the second floor. Now, it was, a, it was a major invention, but there was a lot of trauma around it, and some people were even concerned about the effects that it could have on the body at, a, at rising at that rapid, rapid rise of altitude. So they were kind of concerned about that. In fact, people were so traumatized when they first introduced this contraption that would take people from the first floor up to the second floor that they, when they got to the top, they would be so traumatized that they would give them a glass of brandy to kind of calm them down a little bit. Anybody want to guess what that contraption was? It was an escalator. You know, and, uh, you know, I, I thought that was interesting. And I went on to read, I, w- I was reading where, you know, the Apostle Paul, when Paul traveled on a ship, that 1,500 years later, that when Columbus would travel on a ship, it would be pretty much the same mode of transportation. In other words, for thousands of years, things have just kind of continued the way they always have. But about 75 or 80 years we're in about 75 to 80 years. The Wright brothers, in fact, this I think it's this Tuesday, December the 17th, 1903, the Wright brothers, Orville and um, 
Wilbur, Wilbur Wright, they traveled 120 feet. They had traveled 120 feet in 12 seconds at 6.8 miles per hour. Okay, and it was a it was a it was a traumatic thing. 75 years later, Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird jet would fly at 2,193 miles per hour. Now, if that doesn't impress you, the space shuttle flies at 17,500 miles per hour and sees a sunset, sunrise to sunset, every 45 minutes. Daniel predicted that in the days prior to the coming of Christ, that there would be an accelerated time of knowledge. Now I want you to take your Bibles and real briefly, I want you to take a left and I want you to go over there into the Old Testament and I want to show you something and then, uh, then make a couple of statements and then we're going to finish out this series that we call, that we call the rapture. In, in Daniel, I think, it's, I think I'm right here, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, it says at that time, now Daniel's also talking about the end time here, the archangel. The archangel Michael, back in chapter 9, has come to speak to Daniel about end time, about the end, what's going to happen in the end. And then in chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12, and then when Daniel's told to close up this prophecy and to seal it, for a time somewhere in the future. And that would the key that would unlock that seal would be the book of Revelation. But in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, at that time Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up, seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many, now I want you to look at this last part. Many will go here and there. That means travel will be very quick and they will increase in knowledge. I was reading an article where it says that knowledge, everything that we know, is doubling. Let me see. It's, it's doubling every 12 months. That's right. It's doubling every 12 months. In other words, right now, we are learning so much. We are, we are growing in knowledge to the degree that every 12 months, we double all the sum total of what we know. We double it every 12 months. Now, parent of young children, listen for a moment. The article went on to make this statement. Soon, that doubling of knowledge will be every 12 hours. Can you imagine that? So if we were honest and we look at some of these passages, messianic and even prophetic passages as to the second coming of Jesus Christ, we realize that it's very true that we could be living in those days, right? And all God's people said, Amen. Now, over the last few, couple of weeks, I've kind of given you a little bit of a seminary class, and I've probably have done a poor job of it, but this word eschatos, which means last things, 
in this study of last, last things we call eschatology. And if you're in a seminary class, in other words, if you were working on a master of divinity or you're working, you're, uh, working toward a, some kind of ministerial calling and being educated, then you're probably going to go through at least one class, maybe a couple of classes, where you're going to be talking about eschatology or end time or prophetic type statements that the scripture has as to the end. Now, last week... We, uh, we had people up here holding these cards. Do you remember? We had these people up here holding these cards. And basically what we said was these cards were like a recipe. In fact, they were ingredients in a recipe. And, and last week, the, the, the display that we had up here was, what, was one of four views when it comes to end-time prophecy. Let me, let me tell you real quickly. The, what we talked about last week was a dispensational Premillennial, and and uh, I'm I'm trying to figure out how I can do this without having the cards up here, but I'm going to have to put the cards up here. So, ladies, you four, Tommy, you and your mother-in-law, y'all come. There, we've got eight right here. I think we need eight, right? Now uh, we need nine. D, can you come up here and help me, buddy? Come up here, man. Sheila, you, you kind of hand them out there if you do that, okay? And, and what I want you to see is we, we said that a lot of times when you think of end-time prophecy, you think of it kind of like a recipe or uh, with certain ingredients. And, and, and some positions have a lot of ingredients. And, and just like in a recipe, those ingredients have to be put into the recipe at a certain time. And so here you have what we call a, a dispensational premillennialist. In other words, what a dispensational premillennialist says is that right now we're living in the church age. Okay, so we're, we're in the church age right now. And, and uh, this is the dispensation of grace. In other words, what Daniel talks about the 69th week. And, and we could get into a lot of that, and it'd probably be a great time. Jeff was laughing one time. He and Leanne, a couple from Fandon, we were in a restaurant out on the reservoir, and we stayed there. I think they finally had to run us off because we got to talking about prophecy. But anyway, we're in this dispensation of grace in the church age. Now, at some point in the future, this, is, this event's going to happen. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul said, we shall be called up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord in the air. So at some point in the future, the dispensational premillennialist says, in the church age, there's going to come that event called the rapture in which God's going to take his church, snatch us up, called up, take us out. When that happens, it will initiate this event called the tribulation or the seven years of tribulation. And we talked about last week, we said, you know, if you're a pre-trib... Then what? And, and I'm trying to help you because when you read a lot of times or when you're looking at the Bible, a lot of times it can be very confusing. So I'm trying to help you understand that there are different views as to how this thing's going to play out. But a pre-trib is somebody who says, hey, the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation. Some people are what we call a mid-trib, and what they believe is that halfway into the seven years of tribulation, that the Antichrist, Satan's Messiah, the one who brings a cohesiveness and uh, order back to a world that has been disrupted by this, will break his agreement with Israel, and halfway into the tribulation, when he breaks that agreement, it, 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 it begins what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, and the rapture will take place mid-trib. There are some people that are post-trib, and they believe that the rapture will take place, we could put it right here, after the tribulation. In other words, 
you and I, the church, we're going to go through the tribulation and then we're going to be taken out. So, but a dispensational premillennialist is somebody who would put it in this order right here. Now, at some point at the end of the tribulation, there'll come that event called Armageddon where the nations of the world will gather in a final conflict and here is when Christ will step in and defeat his enemies and defeat the world's armies and save Israel. Now, this will begin the millennium or the millennial reign of Christ. In other words, once this happens, then, then Christ will begin to reign for a thousand years. This is where the views begin to separate. Some believe this to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ after this battle of Armageddon. Some people believe that it's symbolic. It's just symbolic that we're already in the millennial reign, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But anyway, after the thousand-year reign, then Satan will be loosed. And let me tell you this much. Every theologian in the world, no matter how gifted they are, struggles with this, trying to figure out why God would allow, why he would release Satan. But we're going to talk about that too. Then we have the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment we said last week that you don't want to be at. Okay? You want to be at the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment of works, good and well, not of works, but the judgment of how you and I have conducted and lived out our life, those opportunities that we've had to give service to Christ. And this, this, we don't want to be at this judgment. This is the judgment of the wicked. Then we have the eternal state. And basically what that is is when we live forever with God and on a new earth, new heaven, and a new kingdom. Now we have Sheila down here holding Christ's returns because Christ's return is, uh, it, it, can be, it can be moved around. Uh, we, we would say, well, you know, Christ returns here, but does he really return? No, he, he, he's midair. Paul said, and we shall be called up together with them in the air. So would we say that the rapture is really the return of Christ? And so there's theological arguing back and forth a little bit over that. Some people would say, well, here's Christ's return belongs right here because this is when Christ steps into Armageddon and basically saves the day. And it's a great event. And I got news for you. If you're a dispensational premillennialist, you and I are coming with Christ when he comes to save the day. Okay, so, and, and then finally, um, we'll give that back to you, Sheila. So hopefully that makes, uh, hopefully that makes a little bit of sense to you. And, and you can stand up there for a moment. I tell you what you can do. You can lay the card down right there where you're at. Just put it on the floor right there. And if I need you to come up here again, then I can, I can just call you up here, okay? And we need to give them a round of applause. They've done a great job. Now, the, the second view was historical premillennialist. And what a historical... In fact, that would be a good idea. What we could do is do it. An historical premillennialist, and if you need to see this, an historical premillennialist is basically... And it comes from Justin Martyr, who was one of the early church fathers who held to this position. And a, and a, and a historical dispensationalist, a postmillennialist, an amillennialist. In other words... Three views see Israel as somewhat... Um, they see the church as a spiritual Israel. In other words, what they would say is God's finished. He's finished with Israel. Uh, you know, the church is the new Israel. And whatever God's going to do for the kingdom, God's going to do it through His church, the body of believers. And He's finished with Israel. An historical premillennialist holds to that position. And the only thing that they would do is they would take the rapture and they would put it on the other side of the tribulation. Now, they may disagree on some other, other points there. And then we have the post-millennial, which is an individual 
who basically says this, we could just take all these cards up. Basically what a post-millennial position is this. And let me just, let me just do it this way. This is it. Post-millennial position, in fact, really, a lot of people won't even argue about it because they don't feel like it's biblical at all. But a post-millennial position is basically this. We're in the church age, and uh, the Christianization of the world will take place until Christ... And when it takes place, when we get everything ready, then Christ is going to return. So we just got to be busy, and we're going to Christianize the world, and uh, when, when we've done that, then Christ will return. So... That hurt. I know it hurt you more than it did me. But anyway, the last position, and the one I'm going to spend a moment on today is, is the amillennial position. And the reason I'm going to talk about the amillennial position is basically because outside of the, pre, uh, the dispensational premillennial position is probably in some ways the more popular or one of the more popular and so, uh, again, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Now, let me, let me say again, it's, it's, it's also a popular position. And, and basically what we would do, I'm trying to figure out whether we could do this or not. Let me get four, ladies, can I get you back up here? You four ladies right here on the front. Uh, Sheila, pick up the church age. Somebody get somebody pick up church age. Somebody pick up Christ returns. Where's Christ returns? They'll be next. Somebody pick up uh, judgment. Let's just say great white throne judgment, but judgment could be a little more than that. And um, and then somebody pick up eternal state. Okay. So what I need is church age here, church age right here. I need Jesus returns here. I need judgment here, and I need uh, eternal state here. This, is, this, in some ways, is an amillennial position, okay, basically. And, and, and I may not do it perfect justice, but this is a position that's held by most Catholics. I think Catholics tend to, to, to go with the amillennial position. It's also held by most Calvinists, those of the Reformed theological position. They tend to believe this as well. There's some similarities between this and the uh, post-millennial. The point is this, is they would say that again, that Israel, uh, we're Israel. We're, we're, we're kind of the spiritual Israel, that God is finished with Israel, and, and this is it. Okay, ladies, so you can, you can sit down now. And, you know, I got to looking at this, and I wonder, well, it's strange. In, in fact, it, it's strange because Augustine held to the position I just showed you, Puritans in the 15, well, the Puritanism, they held to the position, a millennial position. And, and so I began to wonder, why is that? And, and John MacArthur said something that I thought was good. John MacArthur said this, and he, John MacArthur is a strong Calvinist, comes from a Reformed theological position, and is a Presbyterian. John MacArthur holds to uh, the dispensational premillennial position, while most of his peers hold to the position that you just saw here, an amillennial position. So I begin to wonder, you know, why, why, what happened to us as the church was developing? And he basically said this, and, and this is important, I want you to hear this. If you're going to be a Bible student, you better learn some of these things. For 1,500 years, the church was in the Dark Ages. And I don't know why it's doing that. It's probably the enemy. 
The, for 1,500 years, the church was in the dark ages. In other words, the church did not really... People didn't have the Bible like you and I have it. Uh, basically, the Catholic Church was the prima donna, and, and uh, they were in control. And until Martin Luther in, in the 15th, and 15th century, until then, most people, and even the early New Testament church, really didn't doctrinally understand fully what they believed. In a lot of ways, they were mapping it out, Augustine being one of them. And by the 1500s, then you would see men like Martin Luther and others who would come along that would begin to map out. John MacArthur said this, one of the things that the church was not mapping out till later was eschatology. In other words, what we believed about the end time and about prophecy and the end time. So this is why there's different views. Now, let, let, me, let, me, let me say a couple of things here. An amillennial believes this. Whereas dispensational premillennialist believes that things are getting worse and they're going to get so bad that God's going to take the church, going to take his people out. A postmillennial says things are getting better. An amillennialist just kind of says things are just going to stay the way they are. In other words, it's really not going to get a lot better. In fact, we, Christ is here. Christ is already here. He's been here. He's ruling. He's reigning. And, and this thousand years is just figurative. It's not really, a, not really a thousand years. Does that make sense? Say amen. And you and I are Israel in a spiritual sense. We are Israel. There's no future for Israel. In other words, Israel as the covenant people of God, that's no more. There's not going to be a revival of Israel. Israel's not going to be redeemed as a nation. Uh, Jerusalem is not going to be the seat of government. Uh, all of that is figurative, symbolic, and it's not literal. So an amillennialist kind of holds to that position. And, and I'm, I'm really getting awkward now here because I'm trying not to move too much because every time I move and get involved in this thing, I feel like something's going to happen. Now, the question asked to people when you're in a discussion about end-time prophecy and you find that one view's differing from the other, if you were sitting with an all-millennialist, you might simply ask some of these questions. You might simply say, is this it? Are we in, are we in, are we in the millennial kingdom? Uh, are we in the millennium right now? Is, uh, is this the world that John is going to describe in Revelation chapter 21 through 6? So let's look at that and then, uh, and then you can, we'll go a little bit farther. In Revelation chapter 20 verse 1 through 6, and I'll finish this series today. Thank God and I'll go back to regular uh, scripture and just be so glad. In, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, John said, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, in the Greek it's the abyssos, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, diabolos, the slanderer, the accuser of the brethren, or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life 
and they reign with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign for him, with Him for a thousand years. So basically an amillennialist says, wait a minute, this is symbolic, it's not literal. Right now we're in the millennial, we're living in the kingdom. Now if you and I heard somebody say that, we would immediately think, well wait a minute, we, we, we've got some big problems here. One problem, and the first problem is immediate. What is it? Satan is bound. Look at verses 1 through 3. He said, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. So basically what we have here, and what you might say to somebody who holds this position, you'd say, well, wait a minute. If we're in the millennial kingdom, if we're in the thousand-year reign of Christ... Then I have to ask you a question. According to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, is Satan bound? Now, an amillennialist might answer, and they may say, well, in Matthew 12, 22 through 29, Jesus talked about taking a strong man's house, and to take a strong man's house, you've got to first bind him. So in order for Jesus to, for the Christianization, or the us, the spiritual Israel, to, to, to take this creation for God, there has to be the binding of Satan. Well, that's not really, that scripture's taken out of context. The problem here is, and the problem that we see over and over again, one problem is you'll never find in the scripture the word year used with a number that is not literal. In other words, every time you find a number and year, you'll find them all, it's never symbolic, it's always real. But the question is here, and the question would be to this position, and why I don't hold to this position is that I don't see Satan as being bound. They would say, well, wait a minute, Satan was bound at Calvary. Well, let's think about that for a minute. Satan was defeated at Calvary, but he wasn't bound. And if you go back and you look at Scripture, let me give you some. Acts, Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Ananias and Sapphira. You remember them in Acts chapter 5, verse 3? Barnabas came. Barnabas liquidated everything, brought all everything, and, and placed it at the feet of the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira saw the recognition that Barnabas was getting. They said, man, we're going to do the same thing. You know what Barnabas and, and Anan, I mean, Ananias and Sapphira did? They lied about what they gave. And you know what God did with them? He struck them dead. But the Bible says in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, it says when Peter confronted them, he said, Satan entered their hearts and they lied about what? He said, the point is they lied about their giving, but Satan entered their hearts. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul said this to the church at Corinth. Satan, what Paul was saying is, Satan right now is blinding the minds of the unbeliever. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Satan goes about like a, you want to finish it? like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It doesn't sound like our enemy is in any sense of the word bound. The Bible says we're to resist what? The devil and he will flee from us. So the one problem that I have with an amillennial position, though it is popular is that I don't see Satan bound. And according to Revelation chapter 20, we have a thousand year reign by which Christ is ruling and reigning over this earth. 
And in that context, Satan is alive in chapters 1 through 20, and then in chapter 20 he is bound with a great chain placed in the abyss, the abyssos, the prison of the universe for the spiritually fallen, and there he waits. John MacArthur said this statement. The reason I keep quote, the reason I quote MacArthur here is because MacArthur, though he is from the Reformed position, theologically, MacArthur is a predispensational premillennialist, and he and he parts ways with his peers. This is one of the reasons why he parts ways is because he says in the millennial reign Satan will be bound, and that's not the case, and we don't see it in Scripture. But MacArthur said this, he said, A literal kingdom of a thousand years after Christ's return and before the new heavens and the new earth is the subject of Revelation chapter 20. In other words, all the way through Revelation, God has been getting His creation world ready. He sent the, he sent the seven seal judgments. He sent the seven trumpets judgments. He sent the seven vows or bowl judgments. All of this is bringing judgment on the earth but in essence getting it ready. He's getting it ready for the kingdom reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, in what MacArthur goes on to say here, and I think it's good, any other viewpoint just gets so confounded. Now listen to what he says. He's a a dispensational premillennialist. He said, a literal kingdom of a thousand years after Christ's reign return and before the new heaven and the new earth is the subject of Revelation chapter 20. Any other view just gets so confounded that you can't find your way through this passage without, he called it, without some magic. He concludes the bottom line in all of this discussion is to take a literal interpretation of the Scripture. In other words, a, pre, a, a dispensational premillennialist, when you see this, these cards up here arranged the way they are, this follows the chronology of the book of Revelation. This is how the, the book of Revelation unfolds the end time. So what he's saying is the bottom line in all of the discussion and all the different views is to take a literal interpretation of the Scripture and simply to follow the chronology of Revelation and you're going to come up with a premillennial view. In other words, that Christ will rapture His church, then the tribulation, then the, Armaged- then the battle of Armageddon, then the millennial reign of Christ. Now... He concludes by quoting John Wolvert, and he says, John Wolvert said this, the only reason for denying such a conclusion would be to avoid being a premillennialist. In other words, basically, this sounds complicated, and there's a lot to it, and your thought may be, people look at you and say, man, you people, what are y'all smoking over at Southside? You know, something ain't right. You people are cooked in the, in the head because that just sounds like a, that's not like a, a sci-fi novel or something like that. But scripturally, to me, this is where I hold. I hold to a pre, uh, dispensational premillennialism. In other words, I believe that we are presently in the church age. I do believe that God still has a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel and that will be played out in the end. And we will see that. I believe, I believe in the church age we're in this dispensation of grace. We're in this break between the 60th and 9th and 70th week as Daniel talked about. I do believe what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 that there'll come some point in this dispensation of grace that God will snatch or take His church out. When that happens, I do believe in Revelation chapter 6 all the way to Revelation chapter 20, which again, after chapter 3 of Revelation, you don't see the church again until you get all the way to the end of the book.
The reason being is because we're out. The church is raptured, then it initiates the tribulation. I do believe that after the, during the tribulation, they'll come that point to where Satan, Satan's Messiah, the Antichrist, Paul speaks about him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, will break his agreement with Israel. I believe there'll come a point where the nations of the world will convene on the nation of Israel basically to take it out. What the president of Iran said, he said was this, I want to remove Israel from the map and to remove these people. And if he had the power to do it, he would do it. That would be the mentality of a lot of people as we approach Armageddon. In Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo, Napoleon said the great battlefield, the greatest battlefield he's ever seen for a war of the magnitude of Revelation. In that battle, Christ, the Bible says, will step into that scene and he will save Israel in the, ninth, in the, in the 11th hour. Once he does that, the angel, I don't know what angel, will be given a great chain, given the key, and, and the angel will take Satan and will bind him and cast him into the abyss. And you may say, well, that's strange to me. Where does that come from? If you go back and you look in the New Testament, you'll find the demons were always worried about being cast into that prison. They knew that prison well. The Gadarean, the demons that possessed the Gadarean, knew that prison well, and they begged Jesus, please don't put us in the abyss. It is the greatest prison for incarcerating the spiritually fallen of any place. It is a prison that holds them even now. In Revelation, periodically, that prison will be released, the prison will be opened, and there'll be demons that will infect this world. So once Satan is bound, we're in the millennial reign of Christ, thousand-year reign of Christ. This is a time where Jerusalem's the capital. This is... This is uh, um, this is Eden. This is Eden in many ways. This is what God intended for you and I. Satan will be loosed, and then Satan will be finally and forever defeated. And the Bible says that he and his angels will be cast into the lake of fire, a place that has been prepared for the angels. Listen, God never intended for you to go to hell. And then there'll be, um, then there'll be the eternal state. Now, let me close with this. Let me close by saying, what do you do if you mess the rapture? Okay, you with me? What do you do if you mess the rapture? First of all, when I began this series, I started it this way, and so what I want to do is I want to read something to you, and I want you to listen. If you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior and this called up snatching, rapture, where God removes His church takes place... And the Bible says, first of all, I want you to listen closely, you will be left. In other words, what that will be like is a husband or a wife is going to wake up, they're going to roll over in bed, and the one they love is not going to be there. Parents are going to get up. The Bible says two will be laying in the bed, one will be taken, the other left. It'll be just that quick, like a thief in the night. The Bible says parents, or you and I can understand that we'll walk into our children's room, you may walk into your child's room and you're going to realize that small elementary age children, children that have not reached the age of accountability, those children are going to be gone. You're going to run out into your neighborhood, out into the streets. After you call 911, you're not going to get through to 911 because they're going to be inundated with more calls than they can handle. You're going to go out there screaming and hollering because your children are gone only to see your neighbors, some of them screaming and hollering because their children will be gone as well. Circuits will be jammed. You won't get service that day. 
at the workplace, at the Nissan plant, or wherever you work, whether you work in a hospital, whether you work in a factory, whatever you do, in an office building, all of a sudden you're going to look around and you're going to realize that godly men and women are no longer there. They're not going to be the brunt of your jokes anymore. The Bible says two will be working in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. At the schools where teachers have tried to live out the faith, carried their Bibles in their purses, men who've carried their their Bibles in their back pocket, those people who've tried to pray quietly, who've tried to live out that godly life, they're not going to be there. Those teachers, godly Christian teachers, will be gone. Students who have been ridiculed, made fun of, and ostracized and alienated from their peers, made fun of because of their faith. They were the ones that gathered at the flag while everybody else was pointing and laughing and ridiculing and making jokes about them. They'll be gone. Government, the government of much of the world's governments will continue. But they will continue severely, some of them severely affected. Congress will meet. The Supreme Court will meet. The White House, I don't know about the White House. But they'll find somebody to fill it. I pray that Obama knows Christ. The United States probably prophetically We don't find the United States unless it's somehow tied to the old Roman Empire. We don't find it in prophecy. Some believe that the United States would still be so affected by the rapture of the church that it would cripple us as a world player and that we would no longer be a world player in the the events around the world. Church. Churches will meet. Uh, I told you before... Told you when I began this series, this church will meet. Uh, they'll have a they'll have a great service. Some of you that are going to be here, it'll have, there'll be a great service. I won't be here. Y'all have to find you somewhere else, somebody else to preach. You'll find preachers. Uh, you'll find some worship leaders. Me and the worship leader praise team. We don't plan on being here, so y'all gonna have to y'all gonna be having to work hard. But you'll you'll put it together. Call the convention. No, I'm teasing. But there'll be plenty of pastors. And some of you see a few pastors in around this city and you'll say, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's, well, that's the blessing bunch. And a lot of them will still be here. Those that never preach repentance just told people how to get blessed. Southside Baptist Church will have a record crowd that day and a record offering. Won't have no financial problems no more. The number one text will be OMG that day. TV ministries, probably some of them will still be on the air. There'll still be some deacons and denominations. NFL will still play. But they'll have some Christian men and women that have been in some of these sporting events that won't be there. And Tim Tebow will be playing somewhere else. And it won't be here. Let me ask you something. Are you ready? Let me tell you what to do if you're not ready. And let me tell you what to do if you miss the rapture. Number one, you need to write this down. You need to put it on the refrigerator. Tuck it away in your Bible. Someday somebody may need it. Don't let the world explain it away. The Bible says, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, he said, And we who are alive and remain shall be 
caught up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Once the rapture of the church takes place, the world will try to explain it away. Dr. Eartickle will be on the Today Show from the Institute of Technology, and he'll be talking about simultaneous combustion, or we just kind of blew up, or I don't know what they'll come up with, but they'll come up with something. Talk shows out of Hollywood, well, man, they'll be, they'll be going. The view will really be big that day. And I think sometimes the Hollywood has been priming the world for this event and don't even know it by some of these uh, movies they have today. Number two, don't look for any Christians. There'll be church members. And they'll all make it that day. And they'll be on time too. They'll even show up early. There'll be Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterian and Catholic, Pentecostals. There'll be Assembly of God, Church of Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses still be wandering around with their Bibles, trying to figure out what's happened. Mormons, they'll still be rattling away, but there won't be no Christians. So number one, don't let anyone explain it away. Number two, don't look for any Christians. Number three, don't take the mark of the beast. Now, real quickly, and I'm going to close in a moment, I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to look at Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, I want you to see this. In Revelation chapter 13, beginning at verse 11, well, i tell you what we'll do. We'll just, well, we'll pick up at verse 11. We've got time. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf, and he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Now what the Antichrist is going to do, what Satan is going to do is he's going to raise up his his man, the Antichrist, and that individual is going to be raised up from what appears to be a fatal wound. And the Bible says in verse 13, He'll perform great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. And because of the signs He was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of... The word image is the word icon in the Greek. It's the word for picture. Yeah, thank you. i tell you what, folks... America is in a critical, critical moment. And you may think, I'm not in sensationalizing nothing, but I'm trying to be as still as I can, and I know we've got an enemy. Because when the church starts believing in the second coming again, which is not seldom preached anymore, then we'll start behaving better because we don't know when he's coming. Number two, we'll be busy about what he told us to do, and that is spreading the gospel. The enemy doesn't want that. So he said he ordered, he ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The word image, icon, is picture. In verse 15, he was given power to give breath to the image. In other words, the picture was given breath. So of the, of the first beast, so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. 
so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is the man's number. His number is 666. So number one, don't let the world explain it away. Number two, don't look for any Christians. Number three, don't take the mark of the beast. And you may say, well, Brother Jeff, what do you mean by that? I'll tell you again what I've told you before. I I am, in a hundred years ago, people scratched their head on these passages and they said, this is strange, weird. It must be symbolic because literally it can't be true. Well, today, every credit card I have says that I'm a number. Every one of these. Lowe's, Capital One, Bancourt South, um, every one of these are, are saying that I'm a number. My license says I'm a number. Even a grocery store, I go to Rainbow, they say I'm a number. Um, I, I mean, I, all I am is numbers. Sam's here, I use this as an example. For me, to, for me to do anything in Sam's, I have to have this. They have to see this. And for me to buy or sell, they have to scan this to make sure my membership is up to date. Now let me tell you what every one of these people is saying. Because in our day, and a hundred years ago, this sounds like something out of a sci-fi. But now the problem is with credit card and identity theft and, and fraud is the only way to settle this. And every credit card company is putting, putting pressure on the governments of the world to simply say this, we all need some kind of identification. We all need a national ID, but beyond that, we need that ID to be on us, and then we'll be able to solve a lot of this identity theft and this credit card fraud. Well, John, who's looking at the end time, John said, I saw this. John said, I saw a picture, 2,000-year-old man. I saw a picture, icon, in the African language, Mufana Nitso. I saw a picture, it was given life, it began to speak. And I saw an economic environment where the Antichrist, Satan's Messiah, was able to control the economy of the world by basically saying to every person who lives on the earth, you cannot buy, sell, or do anything unless you have the mark of the beast, which means you have to have the identification on you. Number four, don't expect a second chance. You know, a lot of times we think because we've read the Left Behind series, which in some ways is a, pre, is a dispensational premillennial position, we think because we've read that, that somehow that we're going to have a second chance. If you're here today and you missed the rapture, I doubt you're going to have another opportunity. And for those people who listen to the website, I doubt you will either. Because if your pride or whatever keeps you from giving your heart and life to Christ now is keeping you from Christ, I doubt you'll be able to take the pressure that's going to come in that day. Because the last thing is, don't expect to escape a martyr's death. You see, the Bible makes it real clear that in that day, in that environment, if you don't have the mark of the beast, if you haven't bought into the economic marketing system of our enemy Satan himself, then the Bible says at that point, the Bible says you won't be able to buy or sell, and you're not going to sit around and watch your children starving to death, and you're not going to see yourself not being able to carry on commerce and to make a living and to do whatever, and so you're going to buy into the system. And if you don't do that, then you're going to die. And you may, and people a thousand, a hundred years ago said, well, now wait a minute, I can go back up there in the hills of, of uh, Holmes County, I can hide out there somewhere and ain't nobody going to find me. 
My friend, we're living in a day now with GPS, satellites, and everything else. People are going to be able to find you. Not many places to hide. So don't expect to escape a martyr's death. He's coming. Oh, preacher, you're, you're nut. All that rapture stuff and Jesus snatching us out and Satan's antichrist and thousand-year reign and all of that Armageddon. Well, the amillennialists came up with their view because Israel was laying in the ashes of civilization when Augustine was around and when Calvin was around and when the Puritans were around. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the Romans made Jerusalem off limits to the Jew and basically scattered the Jews around the world. May 15, 1948, God brought the Jew back home. You may think I'm crazy, but they thought Noah was crazy too until it started raining. And you may be here today and you say, you know, Brother Jeff, I don't know if I'm ready or not. I, I, I just don't know. Well, you need to settle that. How do you settle it? You need to give your heart and life to Christ. Well, how do I do that? The Bible says you just simply confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, I don't understand. What do I need to do? Well, the Bible says you repent. Well, what does that mean? That means you change your mind. You change your heart about sin and about your life and the way you've been living. And the Bible says when you repent and you invite Christ to come into your heart, the Bible says that He'll do just that. So I want you to stand, and if you're here today, and you don't know where you'll spend eternity, or this talk of the rapture, you're not sure, and you say, you know, Brother Jeff, I don't know, I don't know, I may miss the rapture. You don't have to. And you may be here today and you say, well, you know, Brother Jeff, I'm a, I'm a church member. My friend, that don't make a dime's worth of difference in heaven. It's not whether your name's been written in this membership of this church. It's if your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life? But I'm a church member, and I've been working for years and serving in this position, in that position. I'm a Christian. I went out and visited probably 100 plus homes do you know that nearly every single home I, I went in, people that I talked to, you know what people would say over and over again? Oh yes, I'm a Christian. They live in relationships, back there doing drugs, refrigerator filled with alcohol, stealing and robbing. But I'm a Christian. Goose Gosler was a baseball player. He came, he was in a critical game. And in this game, he was the last hope for his team. He went up to bat. Pitcher threw a pitch, strike. Another pitch, strike. Finally, it looked like Goose Gosler was going to get struck out. And Goose Gosler reared back, and when he threw the ball, Goose Gosler nailed it perfectly. He sailed it right out of that ballpark. It was a home run. Crowd began to stand up and they began to cheer. Team came pouring out of the dugout. 
coach came running out there and Goose Gosler began to make his way around those bases. First base. Second. As he came around second, he was coming around to third base. All of his team was there waiting. The crowd was standing on their feet applauding. But the first base umpire was, was walking across toward the pitcher's mound. Goose Gosler made his way around the third base and he was finally coming home and there was a celebration taking place, but his coach was realizing that something wasn't right. And the first base umpire was saying something, but the crowd was so loud. And about that time, Goose Gosler crossed the home plate. His coach immediately went out to where the umpire was, the first base umpire. And the umpire, um, first base umpire was saying this. As Goose came from second to third, he was saying, You're out! You're out! You're out! And as Goose Gosler went around the home plate, he said, you're out. You forgot to touch first. You're out. Game's over. There may come a day when you hang between all of creation, suspended by nothing, hanging in that moment at the great white throne judgment, when God will look at you and you may say, you know, Lord, I, I, God, I was a member of the local church. I was baptized when I was a boy. My name was written on this membership, that membership. I went to this school. I served in that position. I held that office. I preached that sermon. I did that as a deacon. I did this. I did that. And God will look and say, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. You're out. Have you received Christ? You see, I may have fumbled through this message and the enemy may have done everything he could to interrupt. But have you noticed how quiet the enemy is now? Why? Because I believe God, and I know some of you were praying, I believe God right now is intervening and He's giving you one last opportunity. Do you know Him? So with heads bowed and with eyes closed, nobody looking around, are you ready? Our Heavenly Father, we just pray, dear Lord, for the power of Your Holy Spirit to move in this place, dear Lord, and to draw men and women. Lord, this is not just simply about salvation. It's not simply about men and women coming to Christ. It's also about the men and women who already are here, who call themselves Christians, but are not living the life that they ought to live. This talk of the rapture, the second coming, meeting Jesus make some nervous in this room because they know that they're not living the life they ought to live. And it's time to clean it up. It's time to pull up those wedding, pull out that wedding gown and make sure and keep it up from the ground and keep it, being, keep it from being soiled. And Lord, it's time, dear Lord, to live for Christ. It's time to be counted, to be a follower of Christ. It's time, dear Lord, to confess you publicly as well as privately. It's, it's time to set aside those closet sins, those areas, those sins that doth so easily beset us. It's time for high accountability. It's a time for holiness because the King is coming. The bride needs to get everything ready. It's time for men to stand up in this nation and to be bold men of Christ 
followers of Christ, boldly lifting up His name, not ashamed to pray publicly, not ashamed to look at a fellow worker and say, do you know Christ? It's time for men to put away their phones and their video games and step up and be men today. Godly men, men of conviction. Men that hold the truth in their heart as well as in their heads. It's time for mom to put away the DVD player in the vehicle and sing the songs of our faith with her children when she's riding along. It's time for moms to get into the Word of God and to get in prayer. It's time for grandparents to look at children and grandchildren and say, I don't have much longer here, but while I'm here, I'm making a fresh commitment to Christ, and I want you to do that. It's time for some grandparents to call some grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It's time for some grandchildren to sit down with grandmother, grandfather, and say, I don't know if you're ready, and I need to ask you, are you ready? Do you know Christ? It's time for us to be men and women of God and to be ready. So God, speak to our hearts. Draw us to this altar if nothing but to recommit and rededicate and to say, yes, Lord, I know you're coming and I want to be ready. We pray this in the name of Jesus.